lots of fun out here at Rancho. Thanks for uh, being here, whether you're live here or online. We're so grateful. And we are talking about strength. This series is called Strong, and this is the vision for being a strong person of strong character, a strong mind, strong emotions, strong soul, this, this bedrock under our feet that's kind of immovable no matter what happens in life. Uh, that sound like a, a good vision for life? Yeah, it sounds great. We all want to, to be strong. Sometimes life throws us a curveball and we feel weak. Sometimes there are things that happen around us, maybe inside of us, internal, and we don't have the strength that we want. And so we're trying to get stronger because it's a lifelong process. This is not flipping a switch. This is not one sermon all fixed. I wish that's the way it worked, but it's kind of one sermon and then you forget about it. And then, you know, it's just, it's this ongoing lifelong uh, process. When I was younger, I didn't feel very strong. And so I started a pretty intentional journey of, of getting stronger. And I found a definition of strength that I grabbed onto at the time. And um, this is from a psychologist who has done a lot of writing on strength. And, uh, and here's how it goes. Talking about mental strength. It is the capacity of an individual to deal effectively with stressors, pressors, and challenges, performing to the best of their ability, irrespective of the circumstances in which they find themselves. That sounds pretty good, right? It's what I needed, needed at the time because I didn't feel very strong at all. Uh, I grew up in a household that was pretty unstable. Some things were said to me over the course of my childhood that stuck. There were very hurtful, harmful things that stuck. So I was very insecure about myself, insecure about who I was, insecure about a lot of things I detailed last week. Um, and I needed to find something that was gonna give me some sense of strength. And so this was roughly the definition of strength that I uh, latched onto, effective and performing. And so I did some things that I felt I needed to do and I'm glad I did them. One was to uh, go toe to toe with the person who was saying terrible things to me. And I said to him, it doesn't matter what you say, you will not harm me. It will have no impact on me. Now I just said it, I don't think I believed it at the time, but I was just saying it in sort of a determined way that this harm that is coming will not be harming me anymore. I just had to exert that strength. And then I think based on that and some other things I was going through, I decided to make a few bold moves as a 17 year old. I started a construction company totally legal, right? <laughs> Completely illegal. No contractor's license, no nothing. Put a few tools together, business cards, and just started, you know, hustling. And over some time, it became kind of successful. Felt pretty good, right? Uh, I started public speaking. And as an insecure kid who stuttered, I did not at all want to publicly speak. It was the greatest fear of my life. But I just started doing it, and people asked me to do it, and it kind of felt good to have this kind of strength. I pushed through a lot to do some things I just wanted to do so I, I would gain some strength uh, under my feet and, and not be confined to a life that I didn't think was as strong as it could be. So I'm grateful for this definition, but this definition includes a couple of things, effectiveness and performing, effective and performing. Now, at the time I needed this, I needed this kind of strength, but what happened is I sort of overshot the effective and performing stuff. And so what happened was I started achieving a lot and doing a lot. And so I was very, very busy and very driven and, and did all kinds of stuff, right? But what happened is I started losing the people stuff. And I never really, you know, gained some emotional center that uh, I just frankly didn't want to gain. I didn't want to be strong in that way. I, in fact, I wanted to kind of shut off the emotional stuff because the emotional stuff was hurt, hurting me when I was a kid. 
And so I figured, you know, subconsciously, my defense was to just not feel, right? And put up all of these, these walls around me. And so what happened was I was very effective and, and performing a lot, but I wasn't connecting well with people. And so early as a pastor around here, uh, a gentleman named John took me out for coffee. I've told this story once or twice around here over the course of 20 years. So forgive me if you've been around a while. But uh, I was his son's, his, yeah, I was his son's youth pastor. And I thought in my youthful arrogance, he was gonna take me out to coffee to thank me for all the wonderful things I was doing for his son. And instead he just lit me up. I mean, he lit me up. He didn't say one kind thing and he had an anger in his face and he says, you are no pastor. He says, you walk around here like a man on a mission. Your head is down and you are marching from one place to the other. He says, if you're gonna be my pastor, you have to learn to pay attention to people. You have to learn to pay attention to me. And my initial reaction uh, in my youth, and if I were to be honest, probably in a little bit of arrogance, would be to just kind of rise up in self-defense, is to say, well, if you only had any idea what I do and all I've done and, and what I did with, with this kid and Forrest kid and all that stuff, I, I just started feeling this self-defensiveness come up. But then I realized in the course of that conversation that he was absolutely right. Now, he could have been kinder about it, <laughs> right? He could have been nicer. There's just no way around that. But what he was saying was true. I was trying to be strong in the areas of effectiveness and productivity, but I wasn't trying to be strong in the areas of relationship. I wasn't trying to be strong in the areas of, of emotion. I just wasn't. Those were threatening to me. So when it comes to strength, this is not a one-size-fits-all. And in the Bible, there's not a one-size-fits-all in terms of what strong means. What strong means for you in the season you're in right now is specific and unique to you. And that's what you need. But that may not be what somebody across the aisle from you needs. They might need a different kind of strength in, in a different season. And so what we're gonna try to do over the course of this month is we're gonna try to see various areas in which we can be stronger. And, and as we walk this journey, you might think, well, I don't need that right now. Ah, oh, but I do need that right now. And so as we go through this, we'll see kind of a wide array of ways we can be strong. Because what I needed strength in as a young adult was this concept I grasped onto when tough isn't enough, when tough isn't enough. There was a season I needed to just tough through some things and it was fine, I'm glad I did those things. But I had to then walk a season of being softer. That journey of strength for me was a journey of being softer, to notice people, to listen intently, to get my guard down, to be more vulnerable, to share you know, my own struggles and my own weaknesses. But all of this biblical teaching and the example of Jesus is leading us to a vision of strength that is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And I will probably read this passage every week during this series, Matthew 7, 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes and torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. And I love this because it's really all about the bedrock. It's not about the winds that blow or don't blow. It's not about whether the skies are, are, are full of torrents or clear. No matter what is happening in life, if there's a strong bedrock under our feet, we're gonna be fine, we're gonna make it. It's not all gonna be fun all the time, but we're gonna make it, we're gonna make it. 
Last week, we talked about a strong narrative, and we just had a little bit of fun with the idea of considering life like a, a white water rafting adventure. We're just kind of floating with life. We don't know what's coming around the corner. We don't know if it's gonna be calm and peaceful and serene, or if it's gonna be level five rapids where we think we're going to drown. We're just kind of going with life, but we're going with people, with people who we love, with people who love us. And we're going with God who went through the whole thing, went through the whole river, was consumed by the river and rose again. And so in this whitewater rafting journey called life, it is uncertain and we roll with it, but we are together. We are together and we're with God. Today, we're gonna to talk about a strong identity, a strong identity. Now, identity is sort of the topic of the day. In Western culture, I think particularly American culture, there's all kinds of talk about identity. And so we're gonna talk about, talk about identity, but we're also gonna talk about identity from a biblical point of view, from a Jesus-centered point of view, and I think we're all going to like it, right? It's gonna impact us, it's gonna make us stronger together. I think identity is discovering, defining, and loving who we are. Identity is discovering, defining, and loving who we are. There's a part of our identity that is to be discovered. We are uniquely wired. I think in some respects, we are uniquely hardwired. Uh, we have certain traits, certain skills, certain abilities, certain passions, a certain way about us. Even parts of our personality, I think, are hardwired, and those things are to be discovered. Uh, you're a, a wonderful work of art that's unique to you, and your identity, in part, is to be discovered, sort of revealed. And that's fun as you grow up, especially. There's a part of our identity that we can define. We're in control of our identity. So it's not just about discovering who you are, it's about making who you are. Part of that's an intentional journey. When I was a young man, late teenager, I did not want to just discover who I was. I wanted to make who I was. I needed a certain version of strength that helped me push through some things I wanted to push through. And so I think in some respect, certainly by God's strength and by help from others, I was able to recast my identity coming out of my teenage years. In some respects, a stronger person than later I had to gain strength from being a softer person and a more kind person, a more thoughtful person. And I'm definitely still on that journey. So there's an intentionality behind who we are and who we're becoming. And in it all, loving who we are. And not just loving who we are, but loving the process. Loving the process. Taking great pleasure in this journey that we're on because I'm not who I was when I was a, a teenager. I'm a different person. And it's been a great journey. I'm not who I was when I was a, a new husband or a new father. We're all on this journey of becoming someone a little different. Enjoy that journey. Some of it's to be discovered. Some of it is to be defined but let's enjoy the journey and love it. Now, this identity crisis that I'll say we're, we're in uh, collectively is something that I wanna just detail in a few ways here. Uh, we have talked about our national identity as a culture. We've talked about our national identity and we are fighting bitterly about our national identity. Uh, our country is always in an election season, it never stops, right? And so there's always fighting and always barking back and forth and social media has made this incredibly fun. And, uh, and we're divided as a country because we're divided in our national identity. There are camps really fighting over who we are as a nation. One camp would say, hey, we're a freedom-loving, independent, individualistic country taking advantage of opportunities. Another side would say, well, we're a compassionate, caring community helping people in need. 
and they're fighting. And if anybody dares to say, oh, well, maybe we can bring it together. It's like, they're getting it from both sides, right? Can't do that. There's a group that says we're a Christian nation founded on the 10 commandments. Another group says we're a melting pot of people and faiths accepting each other, right? These are national identities that are at war with each other. There's a group that says we're protecting our American freedoms and prosperity. And another group says, well, we should welcome the world to also enjoy our freedoms and prosperity. Two different stories, two different narratives, two different national identities, and we're at war, right? And what tends to happen is, is because we're so polarized and getting more polarized, we're losing a common identity, which means we are not as strong of a nation as we could be or should be. But just an example of the consequence of an identity crisis. We're experiencing that as a nation. There's also an institutional identity. Who are we as institutions? And when I say institutions, institutions are you know, sort of the, the traditions and the norms, the structures, uh, the organizations that make up a society. And so we are all involved in dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of institutions. Um, the business that you work at is an institution. And that institution has an identity. The stores you shop in are institutions with institutional identity. The brands that you're loyal to are institutions that have identities. The church you belong to is an institution with an institutional identity, right? So institutions deeply matter to the cohesiveness of a society and every institution has an identity, or at least they should. For institutions that do not have an identity and they are just kind of floating around, they get themselves in big trouble. Uh, Bud Light, for example. They're gonna make some big bold statement over here. Yeah, this is gonna be cool. They get reamed for that. No, no, we're gonna make this statement totally over here now. Now everybody doesn't like Bud Light. When you don't know who you are as an institution, there are serious, serious problems. Um, I had an institutional crisis on Tuesday. It was more profound than I, I, I even wanted it to be. I woke up on Tuesday to this headline. PGA Tour agrees to merge with Saudi-backed rival Live Golf. I have been a golf fanatic for 40 years. I mean like a fanatic. Every tournament, every weekend, I know the leaderboard, I'm always watching. My rhythm is I leave here, I get Mexican food, and I go home and watch the final round of every golf tournament all year long. That's what I have done for 40 years. And I woke up to this. Now we can get this headline off the screen because I'm throwing up in my mouth. Now listen, PGA Tour is not this altruistic, wonderful thing, but for 40 years, for me, the PGA Tour has been a nonprofit tour where every single player earns their money every single week and they give back $4 billion to charity. It's a nonprofit giving back. And now it is a for-profit business owned by Saudi Arabia. Now, I don't care if you watch PGA, but I'm not doing it. This is the first weekend I could care less what's going on. I don't know who's the leaderboard. I know nothing and I don't care. My heart is done, right? Now that's just my personal journey. You might have a personal journey. But to me, that's an institutional crisis, right? It matters. Institutional identity matters. Now this is not about the PGA Tour. This is about your business. This is about the business that you own or the business that you work in. This is about the institutions that you're participating in. To know what that institutional identity is really does matter. This church is an institution. Hopefully it's not institutional, but this church is an institution. And we are guided by certain principles and some of those principles are in our mission statement. 
Some of us might be able to recite the mission statement by heart. Our staff and key volunteers better be able to do this. A diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ through mercy, justice, and love. Everybody who's been around here for any period of time has seen these words somewhere because they're institutionally guiding us, right? We get to do what Jesus did. And we get to do it as a diverse community of friends embracing young and old and people from different religious backgrounds and different ethnicities. And, and together we're a learning community trying to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? Well, he advocated for mercy, justice, and love, and we get to do the same thing, right? That's an institutional identity. Rancho Christian School is an institution guided by this mission statement to equip Christ-centered leaders who are ready for university and ready for life. We had a graduation on Friday and our student you know, speakers came up giving their speeches and I was sitting right there and I truly had to fight back tears because the students were articulating that mission statement. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like bliss. It's awesome. When you've got kids articulating like the, the heartbeat of this institution. And then you've got Community Mission of Hope uh, launched in 2009 ending hunger and homelessness one relationship at a time. And so if you go to our you know, Mission of Hope offices across the way, you will see people not just getting food and getting supplies and getting help and housing counseling or getting placed in our homes, but you will see volunteers who are loving these people, getting to know their stories, getting to know their lives, trying to help guide them in certain decisions and remaking their, their, their family and their finances and get them back on the right track. It's like when an institution knows who they are, amazing things happen. Who are we as a nation by identity matters? Who are we as institutions by identity matters? It also matters who we are as individuals. Who we are as individuals. Our strength as an individual is dependent on discovering, defining, and loving our strong personal identity. We need to know who we are. Because if we know who we are and we're confident about who we are, there's a strength that almost nothing can come against. If we have that deep sense, I know who I am, you can walk through hell on earth and you will stand because you've got that confidence. You've got that bedrock, as Jesus says, under your feet. You know, you've discovered, you've defined, and you're loving your strong personal identity. And we know how important this is societally. We talk about identity a lot in our American culture. If you watch kids' entertainment, I mean, from the youngest ages, there's all kinds of content about be your true self, love who you are, discover who you are, embrace who you are, it's fantastic. Then when you get a little older, it gets a little more complicated. Now you start expressing who you are through style, through music, through art. And we're trying to train our, our teenagers to love yourself and to love your body and to love who you are. And a lot of that is good. Sometimes it gets a little interesting, but most of that is really good. Find what you're passionate about and do what you're passionate about, right? Discover who you are. If you wanna do something, go for it. We wanna give courage and strength to our teenagers. And then when we get older, there's still a journey into adulthood in terms of our personal identity. Now we start getting a vocation, a career, and we start talking about, well, I am a teacher and we're celebrating our teachers you know, at graduation season. I am a carpenter, right? I'm an engineer. So we start to identify ourselves by our work and the contribution to society. Uh, we start to measure ourselves by our productivity. That has, you know, good parts and bad parts, as I talked about earlier in my own story. Then we have, you know, families, perhaps. You know, for those of you who are married or might get married, I am married. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a father. Um, I'm a mother. I'm a, I'm a grandparent. These are identity things that we walk our entire lives more and more discovering and identifying who we are in our relationships and our vocation. It's a wonderful journey. So I'm going to ask you a question right now. And I'd like you to answer it in your head if you can. Who are you? 
I mean, like now, answer, go, go, go. Who are you? Some of you can answer that question lightning fast. You just know. You've thought about it. You've contemplated it. You've been mindful about it. And you know who you are. And you can just rattle off a bunch of sentences. You can rattle off a paragraph. Some of you are like, I could talk about myself all day long. Let's go, right? Some of you might be stumped. And so when I ask, who are you? You might, I don't know. If that's you, let me just say you have an opportunity to become stronger. Because if you can't just rattle off who you are, there isn't a bedrock under your feet as much as there should be. If we don't know who we are, we haven't discovered it, we haven't identified it, and we haven't loved it, then we're really not loving ourselves very much. And if and when something hits you sideways, you're going to be more unsteady than you could be if you knew who you were. So how do we know who we are? How do we discover who we are? How do we identify who we are? Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back 13.8 billion years. Big Bang, this is where it all started, Big Bang. Now, it wasn't that pretty. Big Bang was pretty ugly, but, you know, that just a nice picture. This great inflation where faster than the speed of light, in a nanosecond, the entire universe inflates, right? 200 million years later, a gas cloud becomes dense and more compact, and the first star is born of trillions upon trillions. Then when the universe was one billion years old, stars and galaxies start to mature, Four billion years ago, the earth was formed with heavy elements bubbling in the primordial soup. 3.7 billion years ago, the earliest life emerges in the oceans. About five million years ago, early hominids appear on the continent of Africa or Europe, depending on who you are a fan of. About uh, 200,000 years ago, modern man appears and over time, humans fill the earth with complex civilizations, creating societies, governing structures, cities, and technologies. And then you were born, and here you are. So who are you? Who are you? Now, the scientific community has literally no idea what was before the great inflation, the Big Bang, and no idea what powered it, zero. And they're realizing that they probably will never know what happened before the great inflation, and they will never know what powered it. And that's kind of frustrating. And so who are we? Well, there's one option. One option is to believe that I am a part of a natural process of particles colliding, randomly forming more complex organisms over time. We can believe that. We can identify ourselves as that. And from a purely naturalistic, humanistic, academic point of view, that's about all you've got. And there really isn't an option. If you're just looking through the scientific method, observation, uh, natural, a naturalistic sort of a background. This is all you've got. I'm a part of a natural process of particles colliding, randomly forming more complex organisms over time. And that's, that's about it. There's not much more there. And what that results in is a, a life that has a certain trajectory and a life that has a certain value system. And that is the kind of life and value system that's expressed in actually the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is a book about how absolutely not to think about anything. It starts this way. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for their hard work under the sun? 
Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. This is what happens when your worldview and when your identity is kind of locked in just this observable cosmos. And so as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, what's the point of all this? If we're randomly colliding particles, what is the point of all this? What is all this really for? Am I just here to survive, survival of the fittest? And if that's the case, well, enjoy all I can while I can, accumulate as much junk as possible, right? Is that really what this is all about? And what that creates is a lot of exhaustion, just this rat race of, of, of pursuing you know, more work and more production and more stuff. I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed. And as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Everything I see, I want more, and I want more, and I want more, and I'm never satisfied, right? That's what happens if we identify ourselves as a collision of particles, randomly forming more complex organisms, and I'm born. But we have the option to define ourselves in a deeper way. We have the option to define ourselves as made by God. I am personally crafted individual who reflects the personality and creativity of a loving creator. Doesn't that sound like a, maybe a better identity, maybe a better option? I am a personally crafted individual who reflects the personality and creativity of a loving creator. I mean, that is just, I think, refreshing and soul-giving and all right, there's a lot that comes with that identity. And that identity is celebrated in Psalm 139, very famous passage. The psalmist, the songwriter says, God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. It's like, well, this guy is arrogant. He's basically saying, I am this marvel of God. And you could say, hey, in, on one point of view, that's, this guy thinks a lot of himself, Right? But you kind of love that. Like, I am a marvel of God. And he says, I know that full well. What he's doing is, is he's building in his own identity. He's building in his own strength based on that identity. I know I am a personally crafted work of art from God. And he goes through this process. And by the way, the psalmist, if, we, if it is who we think it is, went through a lot of personal failure and personal disappointment, struggles and trials. And so he's sort of lifting himself up by sealing in who he knows he is. Handcrafted by God, God's workmanship, God's marvel. Goes on to say, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And I, when I wake up, you're still with me. So not only is uh, the songwriter, could be, could be uh, David, uh, the second king of Israel, uh, not only is he saying, hey, I'm a marvel of God, but he's saying, I am God's obsession. Isn't that what he said? God is constantly thinking about me. I am such a big deal. Not only am I a marvel of God, but he's always thinking about me. I am God's obsession. When I'm sleeping, God is obsessed with me. And when I wake up, there he is staring at me. And, and we know what that's like. I mean, we kind of chuckle about that, especially because we are saying this is God toward us. And our normal view is, well, God is holy and majestic and we're just, we're weak and bad and sinful. And what does this say? God's obsessed with us like a, a parent is with their little baby, right? And for those of you who are parents, you know what it's like. Your baby goes to sleep and you lay your baby down and sometimes you're just staring at your baby. 
constantly thinking about your baby. And if your baby doesn't sleep, when they actually go to sleep, you're like, this is awesome. Keep it up, please. And when they wake up, you're right there, right? It's, it's just God as father, God as parent, right? Obsessed with us. That's who we are. And so we can say of ourselves, I am the handiwork of God. I am made in the image of God. I am deeply loved by God. God cares about every detail of my life. So every detail of my life matters. God enjoys me. And because of all that, maybe I can do something good in this world. Maybe as, as my countenance is lifted up because of, of who I am by the view of God, I can actually do some good in this world. And I can look at other people as good and other people as made in God's image. And I can look at other people as made as the handiwork of God. I can look at other people as majestically crafted by God. And then how much good can we do in this world as a result? This is all about our identity, who we think we are. Identity means everything, everything. But there's something even deeper than that, even more profound than that and you're, you're gonna have to really pay attention here because this is big. Not only are we the handiwork of God, but we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And you could say to yourself, I am in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? It's something we, I think, hear a lot in church circles and we might've read it in the scripture, but what does it really mean to be in Christ? Here's what it means. It means everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. I'm gonna say that three times because I'm gonna give you a test here in a minute about that phrase that you're going to fail. So I'm giving you like the answer three times and you're still gonna fail the test. Truly in three minutes, you're gonna fail this test. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's a gift from God. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of you. That's what the Bible says, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him pleasure. It is God's pleasure to place you in Christ. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. So we're going to play a little game. It's a little test. And this test is called, does God see you as good as? Does God see you as good as? All right? So let's start with your uh, neighbor. Just pick a neighbor. Think of a neighbor. You got that neighbor in your brain? Okay, you got that, that name? All right. Um, don't raise your hand. I don't like when people ask me to raise my hand in public places. So you can just raise, but you raise a little index finger. If Does God see you as good as your neighbor? So when God is looking at you and God is looking at your neighbor, does God see you as good as your neighbor? If the answer is yes, you raise your little index finger, right? And some of you are thinking, well, I think my neighbor's an ax murderer, and so yeah, God looks at me as better. Some of you say, well, my neighbor's a really good person. I don't know, right? So does God see you as good as your neighbor? Does God see you as good as your boss? Who's your boss, right? Does God see you as good as your boss? Raise your finger, you know, if God sees you as good as your boss. Some of you are like, well, my boss is an absolute tyrant, and so for sure God sees me as better than my boss. Some of you are like, oh, my boss is a good person, so I don't know. Does God see you as good as your favorite pastor? Does God see you as good as your favorite pastor? 
And your favorite pastor could be Steve. He's outside right there. Carissa, I think, is now playing. Yep, she's playing pickleball. She's fantastic. Uh, Joel Osteen, might be, you might be a big fan of his. I'm a huge fan of Andy Stanley. He's my favorite pastor. Does God see you as good as your favorite pastor? Now, you know how holy pastors are, right? So does God see you as good as your favorite pastor? Does God see you as good as missionaries? And you know the missionary deal, right? Missionaries, they deny all their privilege of living, you know, say in America, and they go overseas and they live in tribes and they're getting to know their language and translating the Bible and winning people to Jesus and planting churches and medical missions. Does God see you as good as he sees these missionaries? You can raise your finger if the answer is yes. Does God see you as good as perhaps the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, great civil rights activist, you know, advocating for equality and peaceful protest? Does God see you as good as Mother Teresa who gave her life to serve lepers in Calcutta? Does God see you as good as Mother Teresa? You can raise your finger. Final question, does God see you as good as Jesus? When he's looking at you and looking at Jesus, does God see you as good as Jesus? If you did not raise your finger, you have an identity problem and your identity could be stronger. Because what did I say to you three times? Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. The righteousness of Jesus is yours, freely given as a gift. God sees you as perfect and pure, as holy as Jesus himself. God looks at you every bit a son or daughter as he looks at Jesus, his son. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. That is who you are. That is who you are. We read the passage out of Ephesians chapter one, a passage that should be memorized. God sees you as good as Jesus. God looks at you and says, you are my perfect daughter. You are my perfect son. I created you good. I have forgiven every misstep. I've chosen you as my own. I've adopted you into my family. You are perfect in my eyes. That's who you are. There's so much good stuff there. God says, I knew you before you were born. I loved you before you were born. I see you the very same as I see my son, Jesus Christ. I don't see your faults and flaws and failures. I've accepted you know my family as my own child. I love you. I am proud of you. I am always for you. You are my pleasure. You are my obsession. That is how God thinks of you. And that is so hard for us to believe because some of us might have been raised in homes where you weren't loved like that and you weren't accepted like that and you weren't forgiven like that. In fact, your failures were nitpicked and your failures were accentuated and hey, do better, do better, do better, do better. Maybe you were never thanked. You perhaps weren't told very often that you were loved. Perhaps you never heard the words, I'm proud of you. And so you were always told, do better, 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 better. And so this idea of God just declaring you as perfect as Jesus, that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you, you're not feeling it. That's not your identity. For some of you, you might have grown up feeling less than others. Others got the praise, others got the awards, others got the recognition, others got the attention, and maybe you wish you, wish you looked a little like that person or were, were as athletic as that person or as smart as that person. And maybe even today as adults, you're still comparing yourself to other people. I wish I was a little more like that. I wish I looked a little like that. I wish I had the money like this. We're still doing this, why? Because we've got an identity problem. And for some of you who might've been raised in a religious home or a religious church setting, always defined as a sinner. Even when you're young, you're a sinner, separated from God, deserving the wrath of God. I mean, just this 
message, sinner, 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 failure, 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 do better, better, better. That does something to our identity. We need a new identity discovered through God's word, discovered through the teaching of Jesus. You're as perfect in the eyes of God as Jesus, embraced as Jesus, as loved as Jesus. God is as proud of you as he is of Jesus. That is yours by identity. Just receive it. Just believe it. And like I said earlier, this isn't just a light switch. You can go, okay, now I believe it. I'm good. It's going to be a lifelong journey of diving into this truth and letting it transform you so that you, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, can say to God, nice job, really nice job. Look at who I am. I'm a reflection of the creator. I am marvelously made by your handiwork and you're always thinking about me. I am your pleasure, I am your obsession. You love me, you're proud of me. That's who I am. We're gonna close in prayer and I'm gonna pray basically through the second song we sang today. And if you weren't here for the second song, this whole morning was a waste of time. No, I'm just kidding. We're gonna pray through that second song, I am who you say I am. Those words are so profound and we are just gonna embrace the truths of this song. This is personalized, so I'm gonna use the I word. So as we pray this, just make this your prayer, a prayer of faith, a prayer of belief in who God says you are. So let's all stand together and, uh, and we'll say this prayer. Our God and Father, you are the highest king, the creator God almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and yet you welcome me. When I was lost, when I was aimless, when I was without vision for my life or my future or my identity, you brought me in. And so I am free in the knowledge that I'm a child of God, chosen before the beginning of time, adopted as your own, loved, adored, accepted, and embraced by you, even with all my faults and flaws and failures. You forgive me, you know I'm on a journey, you know I'm trying, and you're proud of me. God, your grace runs deep. And it's only by your grace that I'm forgiven, only by your grace that I'm accepted, only by your grace that I'm loved, only by your grace that I'm a child of the living God, only by your grace that I am in Christ Jesus, declared as good as Jesus, having all the rights and privileges as Jesus, having the eternal life of Jesus. Jesus, your only begotten son is the fullness of who you are. And he showed me just how much you love me preaching a message of grace without end, living a life, embracing every lost and struggling soul. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And in my father's house, there's a place for me. You call me by name and you welcome me into your home and by your side. I am yours no matter what I've done, no matter how I've struggled. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken, I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am a dearly loved child of the living God. I am who you say I am. And so God, I believe this, I accept this, I receive this by your grace alone. I receive this in Christ alone. I receive this by faith alone. I am who you say I am. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Let's thank God for that amazing life-giving truth. That is who we are. I want to invite you to a couple of things. If you need prayer for any reason, there's a prayer team over there who would love to pray with you. I'll be over there to say hi to you. Actually, I won't. I got to get out and play pickleball in nine minutes. Uh, so maybe I'll see you out there. 
Um, and I just want to say thank you for being a part of things around here and look forward to seeing you next week. See you then.